Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Rick Edler with Vista Sotheby's International Realty in Rolling Hills Estates, California. Year to date, he's closed 49 transactions with a total sales volume of $76 million. His average sales price was $1.55 million, of which 38% were buyers and 62% were sellers. He works on a team with five members three partner agents, one licensed agent, and one office manager transaction coordinator. Rick Edler is a partner on the Edler Duranis team. He's been an agent for 23 years and works the South Bay Los Angeles market. In his best year, he and his team sold 96 homes worth $82 million. In this call, Rick talks about joining the business his mother Kitty started working in a million-dollar luxury market on the coast of California, selling a $12 million luxury home, wearing high-end suits in the heat, and driving his clients around in his Tesla S model. Why your appearance matters. The steps to increasing your average sales price. How to change your mindset and feel comfortable working with wealthy clients. Growing a team and his Jerry Maguire moment. Shrinking a team right before the Great Recession. Rebuilding a team focused on personal production. The power of goal setting and the easy way to review daily. Why you should focus on increasing your average commission dollars. Team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Rick. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Hey, Rick. It's great to have you here. Rick, before we get into what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I graduated from the University of Southern California in 1991. At that time, I moved to Manhattan Beach and was kind of being a beach bum. Looking to see what I wanted to do with my career, I figured that I needed to do something that was respectable and corporate. So I got a suit tie and I actually became a uh, stockbroker for would end up being about six weeks. I was in a shadowing program with that and realized fairly quickly that that was not my cup of tea. I did not feel that, actually, really what came down to it was I was in a shadowing program and one of my mentors said that if you made a stock suggestion to somebody and they lost money on it, how would you feel? And I told him, honestly, I think I'd be devastated if somebody relied on my information and I couldn't I didn't perform for them. So you're probably not cut out to be a stockbroker. Uh, you're probably too disconnected and take too much attention to your clients and too much ownership of uh, their pros and cons. It was pretty good advice at the time. It didn't really make sense to me at the time, but looking back, it did. So I, after six weeks, did not continue with that. And my mom had been a real estate agent. Uh, she was with Remax at the time. 
and she kept telling me, please come get your license. We're getting into technology to have these computers now, and the MLS is going on to the Internet, and all kinds of stuff's going on. Actually, the Internet wasn't around, really, but I mean, it was getting all technology-focused. Uh, it's easier to say okay to your mom than no to your mom, so I took a couple <laughs> weekend classes and got my real estate license, and then I started working with her kind of on a part-time basis. I didn't want to be the... Uh, Agent, my image of a real estate agent was the person who took them out on weekends. It was a taxi service. It was kind of the image I think most of America still has of agents, and it didn't really seem something to me that seemed like a real profession, if you will. It seemed kind of unprofessional, if you will. So I did that for about six months, and I tried to do commercial. I tried to do a couple different things, and I just my heart wasn't in it. So for a while, I kind of did a part-time. I had a couple other part-time jobs. And then I met a gentleman by the name of Ron Garber. Ron Garber was out of Orange County. He had a huge team. He literally would have um, subdivisions of new homes that he would represent the sellers on. He would line people up, take them out on bus tours of these subdivisions, take them back, and he was selling hundreds of units a year. He had an entire team. He had a marketing department. He had a buyer specialist. He had a lender specialist. He had, I mean, it, was, it blew my mind. He was treating it like a business, and that was a paradigm shift for me that this wasn't just kind of a hobby, that this actually could be a career and a, a true business. I attended a couple conferences with an organization called Howard Brenton Star Power. I met some spectacular people, many of which I think have been interviewed by you and have given me so much wisdom, knowledge, and insight and inspiration that uh, I am forever grateful for. came back, and my mom and I approached it from a different point of view. We wrote up the business plan, and we became at that time called the Edler Group. Um, we did a kind of a phase-in structure. My mom had uh, some market share and was doing pretty good for uh, Remax, the Platinum Club, which was about 250 in commission. She'd earned that many years, um, and that was kind of our goal. We sat down and said, okay, we're going to uh, double that. That's our goal for the two of us, both of us, to get into the Platinum Club, so that's going to be Platinum times two. So we had a big P2 um, on our computers, on our desks, everywhere. It was P2, which was kind of our our internal motivation, our internal goal setting. We started off with introducing me as Kitty Edler and Rick Edler, using the full name versus just Kitty and Rick Edler so people didn't think we were married, uh, something that my mom probably occasionally likes to think that, oh, yeah, I could be his wife. But uh, <laughs> overall, we kind uh, of adjusted it from Kitty Edler to Rick Edler. We switched to Rick Edler and Kitty Edler, and then the following year, we switched it to just the Edler group. The Edler Group at the time was kind of unusual. Not, there wasn't a lot of groups. There wasn't a lot of teams. That concept was kind of unusual, especially in our market. Our market was pretty small market, I'd have to say. We're a suburb of Los Angeles, the Palos Verdes Peninsula. It's about 75,000 is our population, but we have a pretty high-end average sale price. At that time, the average sale price was about 560, where the national average was about 190. The team kind of grew for a few years. We got buyer's agents. We attended lots of classes. We tried to learn different ways to uh, build the team. We had a listing specialist, buyer specialist. We have a transaction coordinator. and got to be a fairly large team doing big production. But we had what I would call our Jerry Maguire moment. That was when I was sitting in a uh, doctor's office waiting to get 
seen by the doctor for, I don't even remember what it was. And there was a girl sitting there across from me who we had sold her a house. She was our buyer six weeks earlier. I didn't remember her name. I didn't remember the house. I didn't remember any the details about it. And it was kind of that realization to me that we've become this big machine, but we've totally lost touch with all of our clients. We totally have disconnected from kind of what was important to us in doing this business. Uh, within six weeks, we closed the team and just became uh, what we kind of joked, the mother and son getting it done. We just became the two of us. Instead of being all things to all people, we took our core clients and said we're going to be all things to our key clients. We're going to provide additional services, but we're going to get to know them and really be able to be their agent. If we're doing half as much volume than we're doing now, but still making a living, that's okay. So we cut everything back. We cut the machine back. We cut the staff back. It was probably, in hindsight, a great move given the fact that we had this wave of 2007, 2008 coming down the pipe a couple years later with these huge drops in the real estate market. So we didn't have a huge staff to lay off at the time, but that was kind of the transition. So we became the, still stayed the other group, but it was just the two of us. And we kind of slowly rebuild our business with focusing just on our key clients. Ironically, our team has grown, but what's interesting is the team has grown from people who were our clients after that point who liked the way we did business and actually wanted to come join our team and be part of our team as we've grown bigger. So we're a little bit bigger team than we were then, but not much bigger. When I go into a listing presentation, I tell clients, you're going to talk to me. I got my mom is my partner. She's going to help us out. I got Darren, who's a partner. He focused in the beach city. And I have Ann, who's also a partner. She's going to help us out. But your point of contact is going to be me and I'm going to be involved with this all the way through. I am your point of contact. I am your advocate. I'm the one that's going to be representing you and representing this house on the sale. So that was kind of our transition. In 2007, we had a situation where I was in a listing presentation, and I was in not to lose. What I mean by that was there's four ways to play. You have choose not to play, you have play to play, play not to lose, and play to win. This is a listing that was a high-end property in my backyard, my sphere. This was my baby. For all intents and purposes, I should get it. I went in a little cocky. I went in thinking that I had this one in the bag, and they listed it with another agent who had more exposure because the brand had a much larger network. At the time, we were with the boutique. We'd become just the other group, so we were a small, um, kind of like a boutique office, and we realized at that point that we were going in playing not to lose, not playing to win. Again, took a step back, said, okay, what's our strengths? What's our weaknesses? Where's the market going and what do we need? We looked out there for different companies that we could support with us. We looked at joining alliances, and we came across Sotheby's. Sotheby's was expanding at the time. Didn't have a lot of market share here in uh, Los Angeles, especially in the South Bay area where we're located. We affiliated with them and became uh, Vista Sotheby's International Realty. We actually became Peninsula Sotheby's International Realty, but we later changed the name so it wasn't as geographically limiting. And we impacted in 2007 as a Sotheby's franchise, and we have grown that brokerage. Um, we are now have 69 agents in it, but each of the partners kind of work as a collective group in there, and we each do our own book of business. And we've kind of steadily increased over the last couple of years. Our goal is to hit $100 million per year in volume. This year, we're probably tracking going to be about 
just in the high 80s. We're trying to do a little push towards the end of the year here as we're getting up on Thanksgiving. We're at 77 uh, year-to-date, and uh, that's what we've done. Our best year we've done is 96 sales and 82 million, and uh, each year one of our goals is to increase our average commission for each deal by 10%. So we track our average commission each deal and then we try to increase that by 10% each year, which actually ironically works. By focusing on increasing the commission, it's funny how you actually increase your price, but also you increase your, uh, your net profit just by focusing on that element. And that's where we're at now. So that's, uh, that brings you up to today. You mentioned something there at the end that's very curious to me. You you said that you focus on your net income and that you've been able to increase that 10% each year. It sounds like by focusing on that, that's that's where your mind goes and your objective. And, and by tracking that, it's all worked out. My question is, how have you achieved that? You mentioned you're increasing your average sales price did you say that the other way is that you're reducing your cost? Are you also, say, increasing your fee structure? How are the ways that you've gone about increasing that income? It's a couple different ways, and I don't want to be flippant on the answer, but the simplest answer is to have a goal of what you want to accomplish. I remember we set up and said, okay, our average commission is $10,000 per deal. That's our average commission that we get on it, and we were looking at it for more, how much are we spending per property that we're selling, applying to a couple you don't sell, a couple don't go forward, buyers, you have much lower cost involved, but we're looking to try to hit an average. And especially in luxury, and I imagine in all markets, usually when you get to the end, there's always a couple little expenses that pop up, a couple hundred bucks here, maybe a thousand here to get the cleaning, to get that issue that seems to be a big deal to everybody just kind of resolved paying that uh, rent back for two days so they can get moved out, whatever it may be, there's always that little extra cost at the end. So we had it about 10000 a month. At the end of the year, we kind of said, okay, we worked really hard this year. We really don't want to put too many more hours in. Instead of trying to do more transactions, what if we made it twelve five? So you're like, well, that's a big jump, but let, let's put that on there. And then mentally, we had on our board twelve five, our average commission we want to hit. It was amazing at the end of the year, we hit 12,490. I'm like, how is that actually possible? I mean, how, how do we set a goal and actually reach it? And I think it's because every single day we looked at it. Every single time we had a closing, and we looked and said, okay, you know, this closing is a big closing. This is great. We'll put a little bit of money towards it. But if there was a closing and we had to, we figured, oh, we should put $500 to do it, but it was going to break us below the 12.5. No, let's not put the 500. Let's get a smaller closing gift. Let's get a, maybe take them out to dinner. Let's get them a lunch while they're moving, whatever it may be. But focusing on keeping that net as high as possible um, changed our mindset. And we were able to basically increase our, our net by $2,500 or $2,490 per transaction that year. I, in 2012, put all my goals on a screensaver on my phone. They were my goals for my uh, professional. It was a goal for my personal. It was a goal for my weight. It was a goal for the only times I went out to dinner with my wife. Uh, we call it date night. We try to go out on Thursday nights, and we do it. We wanted to have like 80% success on that. I mean, you don't get it every week. But we put all these goals on my phone. I hit every single one of those goals that year, and I felt good. 2013... I didn't. I got a new phone. I didn't put that in there. 
And amazingly, at the end of 2013, I was disappointed by the fact that I didn't hit any of my goals, but they weren't really written down anymore. So having a goal, looking at it every day, focusing on it, it sounds like a simple silver bullet. It's really changed the way we've done things. We also look at all the expenses that we spend. We've switched to a marketing plan in October. We will budget and plan our entire following year marketing in October. So when we get a call from an online company or from that company that sells magazine space at the uh, grocery store and the spot is available and we'll give you a really good price and of course only one deal would pay for it 10 times over, we say that's great, give us the information, we're going to make our decision in October. Nine times out of 10, the next thing I hear is a click as they hang up. They want to get that sale right now. <laughs> but they'll give us the marketing material, we'll take a look at it and in October we'll say, okay, this is our budget. We budget 12% of our gross towards marketing and promotion. What are we going to spend and what are we going to take away to do that? And then what kind of economies of scale? Because I'll get into December and if I go to our uh, magazine that we have locally that's pretty prominent, a lot of other agents advertise in it too, but we feel that we need to have some presence in it. And I go, okay, we're going to commit to nine issues next year. We're going to pay for it the whole thing up front. We want a 12 to 15% discount by paying for up front. So by buying it and committing to it in December, we get the write-off in that month, but then we don't have to have the costs all the way through, but we're also are already saving 10 to 15% on that by paying in advance. So we're able to structure some deals then. So we're not influenced by the sudden decision to do the next marketing, and then we can kind of plan our next marketing plan out. And then I find so often, especially in luxury, is the seller sees their property marketed somewhere else, and they go, why aren't we on the cover of that magazine? Or why aren't we on there? And it's too easy to say, yeah, I'll run an ad there to keep you happy. Or if you give me a price reduction, I'll put an ad out there. And those ads add up and they don't really work. So by giving them the marketing plan saying, this is when you're going to be advertised. This is what we found as our experience to track it. This is what we're going to do. You're hiring us to be an expert on it. Let us market where we feel it's best. We're not trying to sell it to another seller. We're trying to find a buyer for it. By sticking to that, we don't spend a lot of money crazily. I want to go back to where you're at. You said you're a suburb of L.A. You said there's about 75, 76,000. Was it homes or people? That would be our population. Our market is along the coast. So to the uh, west and south of us is the ocean. So they don't buy homes there. But to the north of us is... Uh, the beach cities, Redonda Beach, Hermosa Beach, and Manhattan Beach, which is a very large community, then goes to LAX and then downtown Los Angeles area, West Lavalite, and to our south, we have Long Beach area. So we're, we're, although we're a hill, we do sell off the hill around the corners on it, but our primary market is the Palace Rays Peninsula. So there's a geographic boundary. You said you're on the hill. Is that what separates you from the other areas? Correct. We're four cities, Palos Verde Estates. Rolling Hills, Rolling Hills Estates, and Rancho Palos Verdes. It makes up the Palos Verdes Peninsula, which is also referred to as the Hill. We are a executive level type market. Right off the hill in Torrance, El Segundo is a lot of high tech. It's a lot of uh, industrial. Uh, Toyota's headquarters currently is in, Toyo- is in Torrance, but they're moving to Plano, Texas. We have a lot of technology and aerospace in the South Bay area. Um, in the 80s, aerospace was a primary, uh, the primary market here, and then the aerospace 
tanked. So our real estate market here got crushed. During the recovery of that, it became a much more diverse economy, meaning that many of the people who are part of our community are high-level executives in the entertainment industry, attorneys, financial planners. When the dot-com kind of came in here, El Segundo was a big area, pulled a lot of technology-type executives and a lot of programmers. We have quite a bit of people who work partially out of home and then work go into the office or whatever area they may be. They work in downtown L.A., um, so we're kind of about a 45 minute to an hour distance from that, and that's the type of clients that kind of gravitate to this area. Palos Verdes is a sleeper community, what we call it. It's a much quieter community, but has the same demographics as would be Pacific Palisades or West Los Angeles or Pasadena. What's the average home price in that community? Our average home price is a million two and a quarter. And a million two and a quarter will get you about 21, 2200 square feet, maybe a pool, possibly a view, but probably not both, uh, most likely a ranch-style house. Our market range are probably entry-level home, which would be on a less desirable street and probably have poor condition is about 800. We have $30 million homes, but those don't trade very frequently. Three of the five biggest sales that have occurred in the history of our community have occurred in the last 60 days. All three of those were Chinese buyers. All three of those were cash. All three of those were over $12 million. So our market is kind of experiencing a little bit of an influx of that. We've heard about the Chinese buyers coming in and spending money on cash, but only in the last year we started to really experience it. When you say that you're working the, the luxury into the market, is it because the community that you're working in is a higher average price than, say, the rest of L.A. or the rest of California? Or are you picking out a subsection of the community that you're in and working the higher end of that community? I would say it's both. There's always kind of an aspiration to move to a higher level. So our zip codes are some of the higher price point zip codes in the state and also in the country. Of that, we do seem to focus on the higher-end markets. It's easier to go from a $2 million neighborhood and market in a $1 million neighborhood than the flip of that. So when our focus, our focus is typically on the higher end of all the market. Um, There's about six communities within our area which are considered kind of the high-end or the premier ones, and those are heavily focused by our area. Of the six, three of one are our biggest focus because three of the other ones have a lot of um, history with other agents or they're not doing a lot of turnover. What I mean by that is there's one market that's a high-end market, but there's not a lot of sales. So even if you've got 50% market share, you might be doing one real big deal a year. It's not an area we want to really focus or gain market share and it's too much resources for too little opportunity. The other markets where we feel that there's good exposure and good strength for us to be able to penetrate um, which we have over the last couple of years has been the areas that we focus on. We look at each market, average price point, and then how much transactions happened in the last 60 days, how much transactions happened in the last year, and then how much transactions last last two years to determine if that's an area we want to focus on or not. So the average home price in the area is $1.225 million. What is your average home sale price, say, in the last year? Our average right now that we've sold is 1.64.
So you've gone up, say, what, maybe 25% above the average? Sound about right? Correct. Yeah, I, above average, I think we're a little bit higher than that. And that was intentional. You, you're moving that up as we talked about way way back earlier. Your goal is to increase your average commission. And one of the ways to do that is to work the higher part of your market. And how have you done that? How did you how have you focused your resources into the, the higher priced homes in your, your market or your niche? It kind of starts with getting a little bit of a break, if you will, getting a higher price marketing a higher price property and then just marketing that really publicly so you build kind of a connection to that. I've seen my competitors do it in some smart ways um, so I can share that. One of my competitors focuses on new construction. What's brilliant about new construction is people see that sign for the year, year and a half that's being built and people notice new construction, they follow it, and then they typically will call that agent when it's selling. So that's a great focus. We looked at that and realized it's, it's a positive branding. A sign outside of a property for uh, two years is typically a negative thing, but in that situation, that's a positive. So going after those, even if there's a slight discount in the commission or a different type of marketing plan with that builder, that's a focus that we put in place a few years ago based on another competitor doing that. But as far as focusing on the high end, since a lot of the high, high end properties don't do signs, you need to get the word out there that you are representing those and determine what is our strengths and what are our weaknesses in doing that. We do a lot of the postcards, we do a lot of the print advertising, and we do a lot of the internet advertising specifically for that. But most of our branding ads will be of that property, more of uh, the property and connected with our name than it will be specifically marketing that property going down. And we do a lot of lifestyle pictures too of that community. So let me take a step back. In the magazines and the prints, we talk about us and connecting us with those high-end properties. Even if we sold it and then we, or we represent the buyer or the seller on it, we'll market that for a period of time so that we get exposure and branding within typing with those high-end properties, but the properties that people can identify or recognize by driving by because they may not see the sign in front because we don't do a lot of signage there. So it's tying ourselves with those high-end properties and creating marketing. We had a tennis estate that we brought out that was a pretty spectacular house. It had a giant tennis court in the front. The home was very much focused on tennis and the sellers were very uh, pro-tennis. So we got 2,000 tennis balls printed with the information of the property and the website on the tennis balls. We gave that with the flyer to every agent who came by. We then gave that to the buyers that came by. When it sold, we ended up having over 1,000 tennis balls left over. We donated to all the different uh, schools and the different uh, tennis courts so that they had practice balls they could play with, which had our logo in it. It was us taking a kind of a creative way of tying ourselves to that. Those things continuing help build that awareness. Another thing that I feel helps us in the high ends, we're involved with a lot of charities. These are charities that we like. These are charities that we would support. But at the same time, um, these are things that help get us our name out there and expose us in the community and tie us with real estate and the name. So I'm involved with a couple different charities. My mom's involved with a couple different charities. My partner's involved with different charities. We are there primarily for the charity. But we do do branding ads, and when we do things on it, we definitely will support it with the company name and part of it. 
I also sit on a couple boards of banks and local colleges for the same reason. I like them. I want to support them. I wouldn't do it if I didn't have a passion for it, but it helps build that brand awareness and that connection within the community in a professional level. I want to go back to this idea of a luxury agent. Have you always been a luxury agent? Have you always been working in that community? Yes, I've always been working on in this community. I found that probably the biggest change as far as my ability to represent the high end came in my internal comfort level in dealing with the high end. Um, many of the limitations that p- agents put on themselves for a $5 million property versus a $1 million property is this belief that the $5 million person is somewhat elusive or different or needs to be treated differently. The reality is it's a $500,000 home with just one zero in front of it. Typically, your higher-end uh, sellers and buyers are more sophisticated. They are more uh, have advisors that will help them out. But at the same time, they're used to paying for service, and they appreciate service, and they smell BS very quickly. Um, in 2007, I changed my entire wardrobe, and for the entire year, I wore suits every single day. Um, I wore a tie. Uh, I actually was made fun of by some of the agents in the Beach Cities area, which was the Beach Cities is kind of the Tommy Bahama and Sandals, and you do walk through uh, open houses and brokers opens, and here I am coming through in a suit. But I took it from a very high professional level. Um, we looked at what other agents were doing as far as the pictures and kind of the cute seat ads, and we tried to do it a lot more dis- discreet and refined and have a high image to it. Um, I felt that that came across that helped, but a lot of the mindset was internally. I Every morning, I get to Starbucks at about quarter to seven. I have my coffee. I have, usually it's blueberry oatmeal. I then have uh, my journal. I write down the things I'm going to do that day, and then I'm on. And from that point to the time I leave my office, I'm in on mode. I'm Rick the realtor. I'm interfacing with people. I'm talking to people. I'm on. And then when I go home, I shut the door, and I'm off. I leave my phone on because you can't not be connected in this business. In fact, I don't even know if my phone actually knows how to turn off. It's always on. It's always plugged in or draining. But I try not to answer the phone. I try not to text emails or do that in the evening. I try to have family time and focus on that. Our community is a very family-focused community, so they recognize that. So that that kind of works to it. I set the expectations of my clients and do that, but it's all mindset. Really, is. As simple as it sounds, it really truly comes down to the mindset of believing that you can accomplish it and that you belong in that firm and you belong in that house, you belong as that listing agent. You are the ones who take the best care of that client and carrying it through. When I do a listing presentation, I never practice on the public. I always want to do listing presentations even to my office to practice to get better at it. I'll bring sometimes new agents along so that they can critique me and also learn a little bit about how I do listing presentations. They're happy to come along and kind of pick up some techniques. But when you have somebody who's sitting next to you watching you do the listing presentation, you walk away and they can kind of give you some positive feedback. Say, hey, you know, Rick, they asked you this question actually three times, three different ways. And you know what? You really didn't answer it. You think you answered it, but they didn't get it. You might have been talking too fast, which I'm sure at this point surprises a lot of people listening to this interview, but you might have been talking too fast and they just didn't get it. You might want to follow up with that. That kind of feedback helps me out in the listing presentation. So I'm happy to bring them along. I'm happy to 
explain to them how I'm approaching it and get feedback and critique on ways to be better on that. Rick, you said that the way that you're able to move yourself into these higher price ranges was the, the mental game or the mental side. Could you, could you go a little deeper into that? How did you develop that, that belief in yourself that you were, for lack of a better word, worthy to work with someone in a $5 million home versus the people you have been working with in a $1 million home? How did you, how did you personally transition yourself into that, that higher mindset? I had a coach, his name is Larry Pincy, and he, he's no longer with us, but he wrote a book called Sell the Ceiling. That book changed my listing presentation process in 2006, and I can honestly say 2006 is when my career took off. What happened prior to that was I had a listing presentation that was taught to me. I'd done the same procedure that everybody did. It was proven. It kind of worked. What I did in 2006, and primarily because of a coach, was to start listening and ask questions versus telling what I can do. I start every listing presentation. I ask people, how, how can I help you today? What am I here to help? And I have a qu- on my questionnaire, one of the questions I have, and it's actually number three, although it's the most important question I want to get to right away, what is your biggest concern? And typically, the husband and wife don't have the same concern. Sometimes one will be most money. Some will be quickest deal. Some will be not letting the neighbors know that the house is for sale. Maybe they don't want everybody to know it's a divorce. Maybe they don't want to sell the house without everybody realizing that they're actually quitting their job and going to start their own company. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. By understanding the client's biggest concern, I'm able to tailor my services to help them on it. At the same time, I actually become much more of an advocate and much more of an ally and have a much better understanding of what they need from me. And my confidence in being able to provide that service goes up. When I sit down with a client, because it's not always the highest price, I feel a sense of confidence once I understand that and I've built the rapport with them that I am the best one to get them what they need. And I truly believe that. When I truly believe that, it doesn't matter on price. It's not going to happen overnight. It's taken me many years to feel comfortable. Um, One of the things that I thought was interesting was I ran for the board of realtors and I was the president for one year. And I can say as president, I left the board about the same way as I found it. Not much happened that year. But I went out and I was able to talk to all the agents in the community and everybody kind of built a respect for me. And I found that I'm recognized when I go into a broker's opens. I'm recognized when I go into different, um, talk to different agents or even go into different offices. They know who I am. I mean, no one's going, hey, there's Rick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just they can say hello and there's a friendliness. And we all have to get along with each other. So there's a support structure. We may have one on one deal we're against another agent, but the next deal that we're working with them to get the same deal closed. So there's a kind of a, a collaboration that has developed over time. By being part of the board and being spending that year, I felt tremendous confidence with my peers. And I developed a tremendous confidence in myself. I also find that every time you go to a cocktail party, somebody connects to real estate. Somebody has some questions on it. So I'm constantly asking other people, other agents, title reps, lenders, anybody who is in the business, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? What's the market doing? What is your healing out there? 
pulling those stories in and then regurgitating it uh, cocktail parties or situations that are social. And it builds a confidence that way. You kind of feel like a position of how you see the market going. The quote I gave you um, a little bit earlier ago, three of the five biggest sales in the history of Palos Verdes happened in the last 60 days. I'm going to use that probably until I get to six months. Because every time people go, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's a soundbite. That helps build my confidence and positions me into the high-end market. Was I involved in those sales? I was involved in one. So basically, there were six agents involved, three sales, but I was involved in one. But I didn't position when I said that to a lot of people. When I talk to agents who are getting involved and people ask what the market's doing, you say three of the five biggest sales in the Palos Verdes history have occurred in the last 60 days. The market has seen a slight change. You position yourself in sharing that information, and it's all a paradigm shift to how you present it and own that information when you talk to people. It helps position you as a high-end agent in this market. So that, you know, kind of a roundabout long discussion is how you change your own mindset and believe it and be able to have that be shared with other people when you're talking to them so that you know that you are the best person to help them out. If you don't feel that you're the best agent to help them out, you're not going to get the deal. But if you truly have a, a desire to help that person, to get them the most money, least amount of time, fewest amount of hassles, get them to closing, whatever that may be, get solve their concerns, then you're the right agent for the job, and that comes through regardless of what the price of the property is. Rick, do you think that the, the old saying, fake it till you make it, is appropriate here? Yes. I would say you fake it till you make it, but you never lie. I read a book um, called Why I Left Goldman Sachs recently, and he was explaining that in the trading world, you never lie about anything. If you don't know something, you say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you on that, and you do. You do have to have a, a confidence. It does matter what car you drive. It does matter the clothes you wear. It does matter the, the briefcase you carry, the watch you have. These things do matter, but they don't matter so much that that is the reason why you will or will not get a listing. When an agent drives up in a brand new Bentley or a brand new Mercedes S-Class, there's a presume that this person must be doing pretty good. But if the rapport is poor, they're not going to get the listing because of that. If they show up in a beat-up car, eh, it's going to reflect on them. So there's a little bit of a fake it to make it, but if you fake it and just fake it, you're not going to make it. That would be my opinion. You mentioned in, it was either 2006 or 2007, you, you really upped your game. At that time, you mentioned you got uh, suits. You went to suits rather than everyone else wearing uh, shorts and t-shirts. But what, what else did you do? Did you, did you get a new car? Did you get uh, a watch? What else did you do to make yourself look successful? I'd say the suits. because I'm very much of how I look. Not really like, hey, look at me, but I mean, how I look, like a nice suit, nice shirt, pants, polished shoes, gives me kind of that mental mindset that I, I feel sharp, I feel kind of on my game. I didn't buy a new car at the time, and I didn't get any, like, jewelry or anything like that. The suits were probably the big expense. I went to cufflinks for a while, thinking, because everybody on the East Coast was doing cufflinks, and that seemed to be the thing. Cufflinks were annoying, and as soon as I could get past the cuffling parts, I got rid of those, but... It was pretty much the suits and the mindset. All I had to do, though, was wear the suits, and people kind of noticed it. Also, even going to Starbucks in the morning, as I mentioned, not a lot of people in our area are sitting at Starbucks in the morning wearing a suit. 
if I had nothing to do or no clients to talk to, I brought real estate related materials and I left it out. But you run into people. And when you have MLS sheets on the table and you're kind of like taking notes or just kind of working, you're, you're approachable for people to come by who may or may not know you or have some connection. They'll come by and they'll say hi and opens up the dialogue on it. It's much better to have interaction with people than it is to sit in your office and stare at a screen. But I'd say really the suits is the biggest change. Reading that book was the biggest change. Those two things really altered the way I personally approach the business, I'd say. And it was all mental, really. There are going to be some folks out there that are going to want me to ask this question. So what kind of car do you drive today? Today I drive a Tesla. I had a Mercedes S65 prior to that which was a way too expensive of a car, but at the time it felt good and I was able to justify it when the world was on fire. When I got rid of that, I got a uh, Tesla Model S. What I love about the Tesla is it sends a different image. It's environmental. I'm never that far from my home or my office or a charger, so I don't need long distance on it, so the charge works great. But it has a giant 17-inch screen navigation system in the front where I can zoom in and out, and I can show clients where we are on, in the community based on driving around, and all of them in the car can watch it and see where we're at. And I, they go, well, how far is the closest school? I can zoom in and show it to them. It's like having a giant iPad with Google Earth at your disposal at all times. And that's just been exceptional. It's also fun. People like, like the car and want to hear about it. And I've had, I think, three clients after driving it. I go, hey, I want you to drive it to the next house. Actually, literally go out and drive the car and buy the car because it's a pretty impressive car. And it ranges in price. I mean, you can get it from a low price to a high price depending on how many options you get on it. Tesla has a lot of different programs on it and financing. And again, I'd rather have a nice car driving around than a big office because I think that's how we expose them to the world. Rick, how important is it to be part of the community? What I mean by that is own a home in the community, live in the community, to be part of that mindset. For instance, if there was an agent who wanted to move into selling million-dollar homes and they could somehow swing it and they were currently living in a $200,000 home, would it be valuable for them to figure out how to move into that $1 million neighborhood? I have very strong market share in the community I live in and the streets I live in. I do have neighbors that have listed with other people. In fact, my wife and I joked that we moved in and the five houses that touch us, four actually moved out. At least a couple of them, I represented <laughs> them, but we didn't know if it was something that we brought to the neighborhood or why all these people would leave. But block parties, postcards you send out, people recognize the name at this point, so being in the community helps. I had an agent who was in my community that moved to a different community uh, for financial reasons, and he kept marketing our community. Didn't see any change in his market share. So is it critical to the success to be in that community? No. It helps. People ask. You have to tell them the truth. There's a title rep in our area who lives an hour away. I don't particularly give him business because I don't feel like he has as much of a connection to our community and he seems to be outside of his element, but at the same time, if he was a really good title agent, I don't think it'd matter. But I am aware of the fact that he doesn't live in the communities. I think if you volunteer in the community, if you're involved in things that happen in the community, that's just as good. I have gotten a lot of business through being an Indian Princess Indian Guides, through school functions. I get to attend the school functions. People recognize it. I 
have been involved in a lot of different charities in the area. I've coached soccer. So I'm in the community as far as that's concerned, and they all kind of bleed together. That makes it easier for me. And also, I had a little bit of momentum when I got into the business. My mom had been doing this since 1984. She had some market share. She was already for the REMAX level at the time in the top award at the time they were giving. So she had market share and she had success. So I was able to kind of jump on that momentum and then take in a slightly different direction. We work well because we approach our clients very differently. Her clients that she works with and the clients I work with, we typically can pass back and forth with a very different style of doing business. So I had a little bit of an advantage that way. Yes, being in the community helps. Being connected to the community is critical. I don't think you'd be able to go into a different market and just expect by just putting postcards and doing a sign or open house sign to be able to get market share. I think the the luxury market buyer is very savvy. Luxury market seller is also very savvy. But they also, again, people always do business with people they like all things being equal, all things not being equal, they're still going to do business with people they like. If you build rapport with people, regardless if you live in the community or not, you're going to get their business. Rick, what's been the most expensive home that you've been part of that sale? What's the most expensive home you've sold? It was a $12 million property. What is the second most expensive home that you sold? Ten, and then I have a couple in the eights, and then it goes six, and there's a lot in the fives and fours. My sweet spot where I would say my, um, my, the bulk of my sales are between two and three million. That's really where I do 60% of my production. And I'm thinking about the, the 12 million. Did you work your way kind of stair-stepping up to 12 million? You sold the two, three, then you sold the four, five, then you sold the six, seven, and eight, nine, then 10, and eventually up to 12. Or did you, did you somehow reach up, do a, a big property, a, a 10 or a 12, and then the rest kind of filled in backwards? In other words, you started to pick up listings for an eight, a six, and a four. The latter. It, it was a, a jump up to a high price point. Uh, it was a referral. Somebody uh, come talk to me about listing the house, and then the middle of the ground filled in much easier. And it happens in all markets. In fact, it, it sounds kind of strange, but as you get to a higher price point, you start continuing to market higher price properties, and people start thinking that you only handle higher price properties. Even current clients will say, you know, I sold this investment property here in this area for 600 and you're kind of like, well, why didn't you ask me? Oh, you don't handle properties that low. You, you can kind of, it's a double-edged sword. You can kind of get a reputation for only handling high-end properties, which don't trade as much. I mean, the, the joy of selling two to three is far greater than selling a five or six because you typically sell a lot more of those and you get a lot more connected. As you get kind of higher price points, a lot of them end up becoming like second homes. Many times someone selling a six or seven million dollar home is doing it not because they have a sudden desire to move to a ten million dollar home, but because it's a divorce or they're moving out of the area. So it's not always a, the best circumstances in the higher end selling. The lower ends is typically move up. It's a little bit more of a, a choice. So you, there's a lot more fun, I'd say, involved in that. So I'm, I don't look down at all on a two or three million dollar house at all. I 
actually almost prefer it because I know that's an easier sale. It's more of a, a transaction. The higher end properties, you deal with a little bit more uh, strange behavior on all sides. You mentioned when you're working with the, the higher than average price home, that these people are a little more sophisticated, that they expect to have a higher level of service. They'll smell BS. Do they take a lot more time? Do they expect you to be there for them every minute? Do they end up taking a lot of time? No. I think that might be a misconception. Typically, higher in price homes, people respect your time, and they want you to respect theirs. That's not all universal. I find that typically uh, attorneys and doctors, the two professions that actually bill their time entirely, seem to be, the, as a generalization, the most disrespectful of other people's time. So I always kind of go in there with a little chuckle. But on the most part, I find that higher-end people have paid for service. They know good service. They know poor service. As you said, they know BS. But they respect your time as long as you said it up front. I have not gotten any pushback with somebody when saying I can't do a showing on Saturday at 2 o'clock because I got a soccer game for my daughter's soccer team. I don't get any pushback on that. People respect uh, your decision on it. But I also think that he also comes across. I'm not willing to do that. I'm present for every one of my showings. So sometimes the scheduling gets a little bit complicated. And I let people know that. But you, nobody's ever woke up to call their agent at 9 o'clock and say, I want to go see this $10 million property at 2 o'clock. It's not like that. Those aren't. There's enough lead time that you can do some scheduling. And you can control your schedule that way. And I'm comfortable telling people no. If I jump and react to other people's timeline, I typically make uh, make mistakes. So I'm very comfortable scheduling my time, telling people what I can and cannot do, being upfront with clients ahead of time, what's important, what's not, when they'll treat me, when they'll be able to reach me and not. I tell them I'm their point of contact, and I'll get back to them as soon as I can. And if they text me at seven o'clock at night, and I give them a text back at seven o one, once they do that two or three times very expecting it. So I'm also kind of conscious of the fact that I can condition my clients to have expectations of me and I need to be thoughtful and mindful of that in the beginning. But you also have to be responsive. We are a reactionary business because we're a transactionary business. They're going to do business with us to a point where if we're not able to respond or not able to provide that service, they can find elsewhere pretty quick. Um, but yeah, I, I find that most of the time they're respectful of our time. Um, they smell BS. They typically have advisors who are going to um, go through things with them. I remember when I was looking for a car for my wife, we went to a local uh, Mercedes dealer. And we got in the car, and the salesman started selling to me. And I explained very much up front. I'm like, look, I probably won't even drive this car. My wife's going to drive the car. She has a concern. She wants this, this, and this. I was very direct with him. She kept selling to me. And he kept selling and he kept not overcoming objection, but just kind of going through the sales pitch. And after like two or three times, I'm like, I'm done. Like I have no interest in continuing this conversation because you're selling me. I don't want to be sold. I can smell a sales pitch. I can feel a sales pitch. And salespeople want to help other salespeople more than anybody else. I'm sitting there going, dude, you're, you don't overcome this objection. You got to sell to her. I mean, I was giving him every hint. He didn't get it. So I'm mindful of that when I'm interfacing with people is you're not selling. You're showing them the services that you can offer that can help them. But when you're selling, 
constantly, people smell that. That's the biggest turnoff. A lot of these scripts, you know, hey, you know, we're going out looking at property. Make sure you bring your checkbook. No, they're not going to fall for a lot of the, quote, sales lines that you have out there that a lot of people have pushed in the luxury market. It may work in other markets. It just doesn't work here. People smell the BS. But if you're honest and straightforward with people, Honesty in this business is actually kind of tough because you're always kind of manipulating it to get your client's advantage, but as much honesty as you can provide to your clients and be uh, straight and shoot for them and have their best interests in mind, they'll pick that up and they'll work with you and they'll be respectful of your time as well. Rick, how do you find new leads and luxury clients? We touch our past clients and our sphere of influence once a month on Next week, which is coming up on Thanksgiving, we are going to give all of our clients a pie, pumpkin or apple pie. So we've contacted them over the month of uh, November. Those who haven't responded to the postcard, we've either emailed or we've called and said, would you like your pie? They're going to come by the office or some of them who can't get to the office will deliver it. Um, In December, we will send them a holiday greeting. In January... Typically, there'll be new laws that come into place that affect them both for investment properties or other properties. We're going to send them a newsletter. Each month, they're going to get some touch from me, from my past clients or a sphere. Those will generate leads or referrals to us. I think the print that markets the properties, I think some of the branding, all that feeds and helps. But statistically, the best thing for the buck is working the sphere of influence in the past clients. And that generates new clients. You just need to be in the business 4.3 years. If you're in the business 4.3 years, if you're in our market 4.3 years, your buyers become sellers. That's the average time that someone stays in the house. They move up or move down, whatever it is. So getting into the business after 4.3 years, it starts building on itself its own momentum. That's assuming you stay in touch with the client that you helped purchase the home, if you're good at doing that, within 4.3 years, you'll start seeing people coming out the other side. People who are buyers become sellers. Correct. And we will, we will go after orphans. Orphans are where you represent the seller and another agent represented the buyer, and you know that, buy, that buyer's agent's not contacting them. Um, I like to follow up 30 days after the close to make sure that they're happy. If anything broke, did they need anything? With the, did they get a copy of the home protection plan policy? If it's an agent I respect, I will ask them permission for it or just make sure I do it through them so that agent looks good. If not, I will market those people and go after them because most likely their agent wouldn't. Is it unethical? I don't think so. They're being abandoned by their agent. I believe this NAR figured out 83% of people would have used the agent that they did business with in the past. They had a good experience and like 12% remember them. So most agents just abandon and move on to the next one and we know that house intimately, I'd say probably 20% of my listing presentations, I'm walking on the property, I had some involvement with the house prior. Whether I represent a buyer, represent a seller, whether it was two sales ago, I, I know the home already. I mean, I can almost go in and say, what did you change? Let's talk about your, your past clients and sphere of influence. I assume you keep a database. How many people are in your database? Uh, we have about 3,000 people in our database, about... 600 of them are past clients. Does that mean that the other 2,400 are sphere of influence? Sphere of influence or service providers, vendors, or other agents. We have a lot of other agents in our database as well. Those we wouldn't market to. 
but it, I mean, within our geographic area, but we also do a lot of referrals. So I keep those agents involved in our database as well. What percentage of your business comes from repeat and referrals from your past clients? I would say we're about 60% of our business comes from uh, repeat clients or past clients, 60%. Let's get a little deeper then into what you're doing with these, these folks, these 600 people. You said you're at least touching them monthly. You've mentioned the pie giveaway, the holiday greeting, the newsletter. What else are you doing throughout the year to stay in touch with those folks? We used to send out a battery uh, when they change the clocks, remind them when they change the clocks, they should change the battery in the smoke detector. This year, 2014, uh, California passed the rule that the battery now has to be a 10-year battery, which would have driven our costs way out of whack. So we're letting them know, especially for investors that own investment properties, that new smoke detectors have to have a 10-year battery life on them. So we're trying to hit them each month with some item of value. We talked about one uh, newsletter we sent out last uh, year was talking about buying property with your IRA. We had another thing that changed in our community where we have what's called Prop 16, Prop 90, where you can take your property tax with you when you move to a different community and different house if you're over 55. They just changed the rule where you can move to Palm Springs area, which is a feeder market for us. A lot of people who own homes here will also own in Palm Springs. So we wanted them to know that now they can sell their house here in Palos Verdes, buy a house in Palm Springs, and take their property tax with them with Prop 13. It might have a low property tax basis. So it's always trying to find some value to them that we can deliver over. Uh, one year we gave out books that we recommended saying, you know, if you would like to come by the office, we've bought these books for you. We think it's a good reading book. And then we sent it to some of our current clients. I think our next one that's going out is California has passed a rule that it's no longer going to be selling, allowed to use plastic bags. So we purchased a whole bunch of those uh, foldable grocery bags that people can put in the back, put our logo on it and our phone number. And we are uh, sending that out. That I believe is going out in February. We already ordered them. We already pre-bought them. They're already in the packaging. They're all ready to go. They're just kind of sitting in our storeroom right now waiting for that. We've done four-leaf clovers in March for St. Patrick's Day. Sometimes it's cutesy. Sometimes it's informational. It's just kind of mind awareness out there. Do you make phone calls to your past clients? No. I, despite all this, am kind of phone adverse. I don't typically call past clients. I may email them, I may text them. I get into my quote hour of power where I try to reach out to people on the phone, but that's a weakness I have. I I seem to almost be like allergic to my phone sometimes where I don't want to call past clients. I do have the Ford philosophy, family and friends, occupational dreams and recreation. Um, it's not in the right order, but you got the idea. And so you have each of those topics you can talk to somebody about. If I have something of value or interesting, I'll try to hit them with it by email, maybe leave a voice message on it. But that's something I clearly could improve on greatly is reaching out to my clients verbally. So rather than making phone calls, do you supplement that with something else? You mentioned the email or text. We don't have a huge database I mean, it's, it's a lot of people, it's not a huge one. I typically can go through during a month and hit each letter and just try to hit all my clients on that with either a text or a phone call. Rarely do I do the phone call, but text, email, phone call, something to reach each one of them just to check to see how they're doing. We sent out our pie coupon last couple of weeks ago. We got a uh, client called and said, great, I'd like an apple pie. 
oh, by the way, I have a new address because I just sold and bought a new house. You know, it's kind of like, what? <laughs> you remember that's why you're getting this five? But everyone's going to do it. But that that's a failure on our part of staying in touch with the client, not their part. So we looked in and say, okay, when was the last time we reached out to him? Why, why did we miss it? Is this, is this an outlier or just was it going to happen regardless? She walked into the open house, the agent convinced him to buy and sell with them. Or are we losing touch on us? We look at each opportunity for that. But it's a constant touch base, mind awareness. People have a short-term memory. They're getting bombarded with things constantly. And we don't spend a lot of money and time on Internet ads or Internet leads or Zillow or the Truly or any of that stuff. So we figured if we're not going to be in their face that way, we have to use other resources and good old-fashioned contact, touching base with them is the best way. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Do you have any type of past client events or parties throughout the year? No. We did a couple times in the beginning. I'd say a few years ago, we would do holiday parties. And we would also do, when people like moved into the neighborhood, we would do a little party at their house to welcome them in with inviting the neighbors around. We found that really didn't work in the scheduling. Headaches on it didn't seem to have a good return for bang for the buck, so we don't do that. We have done in the past that there's a new restaurant that opens up or um, something that goes on. We'll tell all of our clients that, you know, Tuesday at Rinaldi's Sandwich Shop, all sandwiches are half price for end-of-group clients, and you just bring this coupon and they'll give you the sandwich for half price. We'll work that out with the restaurant, and then we'll just hang out during that time at the restaurant. So we kind of create a little bit of, a, would say, a festive event or free dessert at Chez Melage, but we don't do formal invites like that, like formal parties. Sounds to me, from what I'm hearing then, that your major method of past client program is, uh, and the contact there, is monthly mailings. Is that correct? Monthly mailings or monthly reach out, yes. Emails or mailings. So you're doing both old-fashioned snail mail and email to get those messages out? Yes. And is the same message going out both by direct mail as well as email? Yeah, it'll be the same message. We, we don't have the resources or time to create too many different messages, so we try to do a consistent. Again, we plan in October for the next year, so it happened on the 15th of the month. I, I, we already have, Erica in our office already knows what she's sending out the 15th of June of next year. And we just kind of execute it that way so we don't have to think about it until the following year. Or tweak it when we see that we missed the client or for some reason we didn't hit it right. So each month, are you sending out 600 pieces of direct mail to your past clients and 600 emails to your past clients? Or do you split it up somehow? Say uh, you have 200 people that you have email addresses, so you send those by email and the other 400 by direct mail. That's correct. The ones that we can do by email, we do by email. It, again, it's to lower the cost. We kind of view our market as kind of old school, new school. All new school, when we ask them, when we first contact them, email address, do you prefer to be contacted by email? Many times they'll say yes. 
my mom has a little bit of an older clientele, they're still more focused on the print, so we market to them that way. My goal would be to be 90-10 digital because of the cost savings. Let's talk about your team for a minute. Who is on your team? And what we're looking for here is position titles to kind of get a big picture of the structure. Who is on the team? We have Darren Dorenzis, who was a past client and a friend who we got into the business. He's a partner. Kitty Edler, who's my mom, who pretty much started it, and myself. The three of us are what we call partners. We have a licensed agent, uh, Anne, who is relatively new to the business, but she shadows, she's, she takes on a lot of our uh, showings and helps out for up calls. Um, then we have Erica. Erica Medina, who's actually also related to me, is our office manager, transaction coordinator. She handles, she's kind of the hub of the wheel and keeps everything at track. Uh, she coordinates our schedules and she's in the office and she's the one that kind of coordinates everything that happens within the office. We have a couple of service providers or assistants that will come and go depending on needs for marketing and also for delivery, but that is our core staff. That's our core team. Everyone's licensed. I understand the, the partnership between you and your mom, Kitty. Why is Darren called a partner rather than, say, a buyer agent or a listing specialist? Darren's focus is Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, and Redondo Beach. And we have found, or at least I have found, that if everybody's pulling the rope the same way, it's much stronger. If everybody's kind of out looking for their own interests, it doesn't, you don't have the collection on it. The amount of energy and time spent in partnerships determining who's client to or what percentage becomes very complicated. And every client comes by different sources, different paths, different history. You can almost argue any case for that. So all of our clients are collectively handled. We share the clients and we share the commission. Part of it stays within the organization. Part of it gets paid out to each of us at each closing. And at the end of the year, we take a look at what our profit was. We run our expenses through the company, but it's easier and simpler in the mental scheme to have everybody on board and not have to argue about which clients, which, and what percentage. It's all, we're all in it together. Yes, I'll sell a $10 million property and Darren had maybe almost nothing to do with it. He's going to get a windfall from that. He'll sell three $3 million properties in Manhattan Beach that I might have given him some advice on, but I really had no input on, and I'll get benefit of it. At the end of the day, it, it works out. I'm not motivated by money. I'm adversely motivated by no money. What I mean by that is I used to go to the gym and work out and feel healthy, but I don't have a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger in my gym of what I'm trying to achieve. It's far more motivation that I get that picture of me that someone takes as a snapshot where you're wearing shorts and you look at yourself and go, oh my gosh, I don't look good at all. I'm more motivated to not look bad than I am to look good. I'm more motivated to have money in my checking account than I am to have a million dollars in my checking account because I don't want it to be zero. The closer I get to zero, the more motivated I get to get away from that. So I am positively motivated by staying away from negative conditions. That's my understanding of how I operate and how I structure. I have the goals set, but my motivation is to have everybody win and succeed and grow. 
not unfairly, but I'm not motivated by having a huge bank account or seeing what my net is each each month. I do track numbers weekly, both our P&L and also our um, other stuff. Could you describe how the partners are compensated? You kind of started to go into it, but if somebody wants to set up the same arrangement you have, how would they go about it? What's the structure? Our structure is for every deal, 25% of the commission stays within the, the company and the group, and then we split the commission of that one equally. At the end of the year, if we have a positive, which we should, of that 25% goes to cover expenses, overhead, and our communications, internet, all that. At the end of the year, we actually do it quarterly. We assess is there additional funds in there that we can disperse to us as a disbursement or is it additional funds that we send out? Darren, Kitty, and I are all partners in that, so we split that equally. Anne, who's new to the business and is not a partner level, we give her the partner title so she feels confidence when she's going on listing presentations and talking with clients, but she doesn't get that. She works on her own split and her split is less than she would get if she just cold went into a brokerage because we get some of it to help her out, but then we want to send her our leads, we send her our business, and we give her open conduit to all of her information should she need anything. Erica is on staff. She's on salary. She has a 1% ownership in the company, which we granted her, so she has a stake in the game, and we bonus her accordingly during the year. I've seen partnerships where they get real convoluted. I've seen partnerships where it's daughter-mother teams. Unless I found unless you really are spending all your energy focusing on your client, when you're spending too much energy focusing on where the client came from and what percentage you're going to get from it, it seems to fall apart, in my opinion, for me. So this is a, a true partnership. If I understood correctly, among the three partners, you all have an equal share. $100 comes in the top. You immediately take $25 and put it into the operation. And the $75 left over, each partner would receive $25 immediately as a commission. Does that sound correct? So this part is correct, yes. And then the $25 that went to the operation runs the uh, helps with the staff, your office manager, as an example, and your office expenses. And if there's profit left over at the end of the year, then it sounds like you, you split that profit based on that the, the same ratio, in this case, a third, a third, and a third. If you come up negative at the end of the year, I assume the partners would have to throw money in at the same, at the same level, a third, a third, and a third. Is that correct, too? That would be correct, yes. Also, how have you structured your partnership? Is it a general partnership? Is it a some kind of limited partnership? Is it a LLC or a corporation? What type of, of structure have you used for your business? We have an S-Corp, California S-Corp for the team. Are you profitable? Yes, we're profitable. Our goal is not to have too much profit at the end of the year so that we're paying taxes on it. The pros of how we run this structure is a lot of our expenses run through the company. The negative is since a lot of expenses run through the company, our take home, we don't have many deductions on that. So it's kind of a a balance sometimes, but we are profitable at about 21%. Let me just try to clarify. The 21% net, is that off of the the 25% that remained in the company? Then then 80% gets used for expenses, and then 21 per, 20, 21% is left as profit? 
or is 21% the profit in the overall gross commission income that came in over the year? The first one, of the 25% that stays in the company, of that 21% of that is profit at the end of the year. It also, since we have an agent who contributes to it and also referrals, all that goes directly into that part too. My take home is about 45% of what I make in a year. My gross commission, I make about 45% personally at the end of the year. When you say that, do you mean your personal production as one of the partners, you're tracking which of the transactions are yours, and then 45% of that will end up coming down to you after all splits and fees are paid out? If I make a million dollars in gross commission, my contribution to the group, gross, um, and Darren does 500 and Kitty does 500, I typically see about 45% of my million with how it pulls out. It's a combination of what I'm taking in versus expenses and also what the profit of this company is. And will that change over time based on your own production? That 45%, will it adjust when your production goes up or down relative to your partners? It will as it goes up and down and as Darren does more business and if we get more partners into it. My goal is to get my mom to do less business and not have and still have a revenue stream but not have to work. She's built the company and she can kind of keep sending her clients and have that so she gets a percentage of that as well. And her, she's scaling back as much as she can. Do you think that the partnership model would work on a larger scale? In other words, if you had 10 or 20 partners as opposed to three, I think most people would be concerned that one, two, or three people wouldn't be pulling their weight, and yet they're still receiving compensation. That's correct. Our model, everybody contributes at a predetermined time and a strategy uh, my mom's would discount down to a smaller percentage, but would be ongoing regardless of if she walked in the door or not. It's like a founding partner's compensation program. Correct. And we're trying to get to that in the next year. I, I don't want to ever get to a point, and she wouldn't because she's family, but I wouldn't want to get to a point where a past client of hers calls her and says, hey, Kitty, I want to sell my house. And she gets paid more to refer it out and get a referral fee from another agent than she would be by referring it to her son. That model ever came about, something's critically flawed. Rick, what drives you? That's a good question. I figured you'd probably ask that. I truly like to help people out. I truly help, like to help agents. Uh, I think ultimately my final calling would be maybe be a teacher or a professor once I've learned enough that I can actually teach. I'm motivated by helping people. I'm motivated by creating opportunities where people can be successful with whatever is successful to them. Being successful with work, meaning other agents, being successful with selling their house if that's my role in it, and more importantly for my family, being successful for whatever is the ultimate passion for my kids. My view of success is them being happy and fulfilling what gifts they have and bringing those to fruition in life. Um, I have four children. They're all young right now, so I need to build lots of reserves so that they can go forward. I don't plan to have a huge retirement or not a huge huge settlement that they get at the end of I pass away. That's not my goal, but I want to provide them the resources that they can fulfill whatever gifts that they have. And that's my idea of success when my kids can be happy doing something that they truly love.
Rick, why have you been so successful? I think that question, to be fairly honest in answer, is I can give you probably a long history of all the unsuccessful things I've done and all the things I've lost money in where I've gone outside of my comfort level. Hey, I'm good at real estate. I should open a restaurant. Hey, I'm good at real estate. I should develop a house. Hey, I'm good at real estate. I should do this because they're somehow related. So I don't view myself as being extremely successful because I've made a lot of mistakes. I feel that I have a good skill set that I can look at the big picture. When clients need help, um, when the negotiation gets in there, I can get in and I can provide a really good service for my clients. I can go in and out of this business very quickly and I'm very comfortable. I'm at a level where I've done enough transactions where I'm rarely surprised by anything and I'm able to accomplish a lot of goals that my clients have for them. That being said, I've made numerous mistakes. I have found that most of my mistakes mistakes are when I am working on someone else's timeline or someone else's agenda and not staying true to my core self or that I don't have enough experience in that facet. The positive things that have been successful for me was attending the Star Power conferences, listening to interviews of people. Many of those people are on other interviews that you've done. This business, people want to share with other people typically outside of their own market share, but want to share with other people and help them succeed. That wisdom, pulling those bits and pieces from these different people and applying it to my own business has been what has made us successful. I've been fortunate that I was able to start on a successful venture where my mom had already started. I was fortunate to find this community that I sell in as a high average sale price. So that was luck as well. So. I'd say a little bit of my success is based on luck, a little bit of my success is based on the people who I've been open to learning from, and a lot of my success is based on the fact that I've learned through a lot of failures what not to do. That would probably be my shortest answer. Rick, I know you have something called Agent Bridge. Could you tell me what that is? Agent Bridge was an idea that came about from a conference a little while ago where we wanted to have a better resource to send and receive referrals between good quality agents without having to go out into the public with the internet space trying to find ways to doing it. So we designed Agent Bridge, which is a system that allows you to identify another agent that's registered in the system, send them a referral of your client information. They don't receive the client information until they accept the referral and the referral commission that you asked for. Then it sends them the document. You docu-sign that back and forth all in real time, and then it transfers the client information, tracks the client to closing, and then produces the closing documents for the referral fee. We designed it by agents for agents to keep it within the system so it help each agent be able to do more referrals back and forth. If an agent wanted to learn more about that system, where would they go? Where could they learn more? They can go to agentbridge.com, and there's information on the homepage about it. Rick, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I would find an agent in that community that they're going into that they like, who has good market share, but doesn't have to be the top market share. Typically, the number one agent doesn't have time or the feeling that they need any assistance. The number two or number three agent in markets typically want to grow and get better, and they have a little bit more drive to maybe become number one. I would find that agent and shadow them as long as you can with whatever deals you can. 
whether you take their trash can leads, whether you just have their open house, whether you're a fly on the wall and just sit around with them. Um, this business, nothing that they teach you on the textbooks to take your license is what it's like in the real world. It's just like taking a driver's test and being out in the driving world. It's very different. I think shadowing and learning from people you respect and do business the same way as you will help gravitate and also they will become your allies out there and having allies in this business is very helpful. Rick, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? I think they're very valuable. I had this philosophy for a while that I didn't want to read many books because I figured if there's a book out there that talked about a, a business thing or a way to do something, once it's in a book, everybody else knows about it. It's not a secret anymore. It can't be that valuable. See, actually, the opposite is true. Stuff that's valuable is put in print, but each person listening to each one of these interviews is going to be a different part of their career at a different time. and will listen to a different number of interviews in a different sequence and then take different parts of it. That collection, that picture that they will paint with all those different pieces will be unique to them. So you can't get enough interviews. You can't listen to enough of information. You can't even listen to it enough times. You keep, you keep listening to the same one over and over again. You get different pieces at different points of your career that you can apply. I think these are extremely valuable in sharing this business. This business is going to become a 95-5%. 95% of the business can be done by 5% of the agents. It's the way it's going. It's the efficiency. Things like DocuSign and digital signatures and email. The idea of faxes is even slow now. I mean, this business is going to be faster more complicated and doing more transactions by fewer people who are, have resources. You're not going to get this from a textbook. You're not going to get it by, well, it's like driving while looking to the rearview mirror. You what you need to do is listen to people who are new, coming up, trying different techniques and growing their business and pull all those resources together and design your own business from that. These interviews are exactly what that should be. And us agents who have very short attention span, we sometimes don't have time to read a whole book. An hour, hour and a half interview is ideal. Get the resources, take what you like, leave the rest, move on, do the next one, and even come back and revisit them. And each year your business will change, and each year your business will need new resources, and these are those resources that you can take on. Well, Rick, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? My dad used to always say, and it's a philosophy I live by, is what's right in the long run is right in the short run period. It's a philosophy when I make decisions, whether they're short-term decisions or long-term decisions, I just want to look at it as what's right in the long run. Right in the long run is becoming a better agent, improving this business. I think providing these interviews and this resource to agents is right in the long run to really help this business and grow versus doing a quick one-fix sale. I commend you and congratulate you for putting this together and going through the hard work of having it. I thank you for even thinking of me and interviewing with me, and I hope that somebody listening to this gets a little bit of wisdom from it. I've said to everybody, my, my door is always open. I'm happy to help anybody who wants to listen, and I wish everybody the greatest success, and God bless. Well, Rick, you've gone from beach bum to luxury home-selling rock star. Your practice evolved from a mother-son team to a large team to a small team to an agent production-focused partnership and co-owner of a two-office powerhouse luxury brokerage. You've made mistakes along the way, modified and adapted. Now you're running as smooth as your Tesla electric automobile. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who 
sells million-dollar luxury homes on the East Coast. Find out who he is on the next Success Call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.